Today we begin the last chapter in our study of Nehemiah, and uh, it, we should be able to uh, do this, I don't think, with any difficulty in this hour. But I want to make sure you understand something about chapter 13. There is a time gap between chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're not exactly sure how long that time gap is. Nehemiah had been governor of Yehud of Judah uh, under the Persian Empire from 444 B.C. to about 432 B.C. Then he went back to Persia. Why he went back to Persia, what he did when he went back to Persia, the Bible is silent. We do not know why he did that. Now, you'll remember, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, he had been cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. And he had been very close to Artaxerxes, and well, you know the story. He had the blessing of him in, in his role in Judah, in, in Yehud. But for reasons that the Bible is unclear, he went back to Persia. And then, after a period in Persia, he comes back to Jerusalem. And what he finds when he comes back is additional chaos and additional issues he has to address. And so these, these uh, verses in chapter, uh, or, or the, uh, chapter 13, he is dealing with these issues. And each one of them is a serious issue that has potential to um, undo everything else he had done in reestablishing the exiles, uh, providing the security of the city, and repopulating the city, which we briefly looked at last week. So I just I want you to make sure you, you really understand that. There is a time gap between chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're not exactly sure of the tight chronology there, but he, he's now going to come back. And this is what he's going to find. Does that make sense? Do you understand? Otherwise, some of what you're going to read, is going to, it doesn't quite make sense. But when you understand that time gap, you will. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 13 now, the first three verses. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. This is referring to an event that immediately followed the events of chapter 12. So it's 432 B.C. It's the last event is recorded before he goes to Persia, back to Persia. And then verse 4, he's come back from Persia and faces this issue. And what he's referring to in that little quick summary of chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, is something recorded in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25. And I'm not interested in going back to that, but they're just referring to that, that it is not acceptable for the Jewish exiles in Jerusalem to intermarry with Ammonites and Moabites. Okay, it's not acceptable for that. Why would it not be acceptable for that? Why is it not acceptable for the Jewish exiles who have come back down to Jerusalem and so on to, to, intermarry, with, to intermarry with Moabites and Ammonites? Why is that not acceptable? 
Okay, they, they worship false gods, they're, they're, they're idolaters. Any, any other reason? Yeah, they'll dilute, they'll dilute the line, the Jewish line. That is very, very important. And so it's just another response. They've read the book of Moses, verse 1. They read about Numbers 22, 23, 24, about the Ammonites and Moabites. Therefore, it is, it is wrong for us. It's an ethical issue for us to intermarry. So they separate it to make sure that they don't intermarry. Because... I mean, in, in a sense, you can sort of practically understand this. Um, there aren't a lot of Jewish boys and Jewish girls. There are a lot of Ammonite boys and Moabite boys and Ammonite girls. And, you, you so, and they're, they're in proximity, so it might be natural for them to go out on a date, see a movie, have a cup of coffee. Now, I'm being facetious, but that, they don't want that to happen. So again, I mean, this is not rigid apartheid or anything like that. It's just the law of Moses warned of the danger of doing that. So we want to be obedient to the law of Moses. Okay. Then Nehemiah goes back to Persia. Why he goes back, what he does when he's back there, how long he's there precisely, we're not sure. Then verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah. Now, again, you have to go back to chapter 2. But Tobiah was an Ammonite. He had been an enemy of Nehemiah. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and all the contributions of the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, what I have just explained to you. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And I already said that. His 12-year rule as governor of Yehud ended in 432 B.C., which is what the 32nd year of Artaxerxes is. So let's make sure we understand what's going on here. Nehemiah went back to Persia, and while he is in Persia, the priest, who was related to Tobiah the Ammonite, an enemy of Nehemiah, gets an apartment on Temple Mount. A large apartment. It would be like taking one of the warehouses downtown, which have been converted into all these lofts and everything, and making it into a luxurious loft. That's what Tobiah had done. Now, let's make sure we understand this. Tobiah's an Ammonite. Tobiah is an enemy of Nehemiah, an enemy of the exiles. And where is he living? On Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in one of the rooms where they stored the things that were given to support the temple. Now, he happened to be a relative of the priest, which is how that, that, that worked out. But, I mean, to just think about that for five seconds, that's an outrageous development, right? You're supposed to say right. Yeah. I, mean, that's just, I mean, this is an outrageous development, but Nehemiah's gone, and it shows you, and this is an important point, 
without a strong leader, things can quickly deteriorate into chaos. That's a principle. Without a strong leader, things can get quickly deteriorate into chaos. So this is a horrible affront to God, a hor- horrible affront to the standards of the law. And here you have an enemy of the exiles, and clearly an enemy of Nehemiah, on Temple Mount, living in the building. And after some time I asked leave of the king, meaning Artaxerxes, and came to Jerusalem. We do not know exactly that time frame. And I discovered the evil that Elisheb had done for Tobiah, preparing for my chamber in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry. In Hebrew, it's, I was angry, angry. That's In Hebrew, that's, you're really up, you want to use the superlative, you say the word twice. So we bring that into English, we put a very, an, ad, an adverb in front of it. I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Does that upset you to read of this godly man, this servant of servants, throwing furniture out of Tobiah's loft? No. It doesn't upset Fred. Does that upset anybody else? Why not? He's not not manifesting the qualities of love and joy and peace and patience. It's decisive clarity as to what they should be doing. And and this is an example that's pretty graphic, I think, to everybody. You do not allow this kind of encroachment into a very holy place from someone who doesn't have the lineage and isn't part of the Jewish nation. It's at the vital center of the Jewish nation, you're right. It's an act of purification. An act of purification. And your word, Fred, I think you used that word at the beginning, that it's decisive. When a leader needs to be decisive, the leader needs to be decisive. And there has to be a clear, clear cut, no ambiguity, no lack of clarity on what needs to be done. The temple needs to be cleansed. An Ammonite is living in the temple. And it's just, it's an, this, I wanted to, I wanted, I thought one of you might say this. Does this remind you of any other act of righteous indignation in the Bible? Yeah. Jesus. Glenn, go ahead. Jesus in the flipping the, the bazaar. Yeah, yeah, the money changers on Temple Mount. Uh, Caiaphas, uh, earlier uh, in, in time of Jesus, around 15 AD, they had been. They had exchanged the money. You would come from all over the Eastern Mediterranean, and you'd have to exchange your money for the temple money that's used, the shekels that are used on Temple Mount. Uh, and you would also use that to exchange to buy some of the sacrifices if you didn't have some, because some of them were traveling. I couldn't afford to bring the sacrifices. So Caiaphas made the decision. This is really unwise. We're doing all this stuff on Mount of Olives. Let's move it onto Temple Mount. And then every transaction that occurs, we take a little cut of it. That's what was going on. And so when the Lord Jesus sees that on Temple Mount, in that sense, it's similar to Nehemiah. This is an affront to God. 
You are doing something on Temple Mount for personal aggrandizement, for personal profit, not to help the worshipers, to take advantage of the worshipers. And the Lord Jesus, according to John's account, takes a whip, overturns the tables. And, I mean, just imagine Jesus. You know. But, I mean, because it's such an affront yes. to the holy, righteous God on the most sacred site. So in that sense, there's a similarity to a degree. And so this is, you know, the phrase we sometimes use. It's just righteous indignation. And the decisiveness of a leader, we cannot tolerate this. I'm back as the governor, and I'm not going to tolerate it. Isn't there a scripture that deals with be angry but sin not? In Ephesians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Be angry but do not sin. Do not let the sin... Yeah. Sun go down on your anger. Then he says in verse 9, Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So when it says they cleansed, that means the Levitical priest came in. They, they didn't use hand wipes that Lysol makes. They're talking about cleansing it with the ritual cleansing that are detailed in the book of Leviticus, which more than likely involved the sprinkling of blood. To cleanse this... A non-Jew had been living there desecrating a sacred place. So he then restores it to its original uh, its, its purposes as a storage uh, place. So that's a remarkable act of decisive leadership. Number two, verse 10. I also found out, and remember, he's been in Persia, and now he comes back, he's restored as a governor. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers, the singers were part of the worship that went on in the temple, who did, did the work had fled each to his field. Okay, what's going on here? They had committed, we quickly read about that last week, the people had committed to support the work of the temple. And they'd taken a vow to do that. And that meant because the Levites, remember, the Levites did not have a land grant. All the other tribes, had, as a result of Joshua and they did the conquest, the Levites didn't have a land grant. They lived in specific cities called the Levitical cities, but they, they depended on the support of the people. So what's, what's Nehemiah find out? They're not supporting the Levites. So what do the Levites have to do? They go out and they're day laborers. They're trying to get enough just to live. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? I mean, for him, it's just incredulous. You just, before I went back, you made a vow that you were going to take care of the temple. You're not doing that. And so when the term is officials, this is more than likely the clan leaders and, and perhaps the officials that are associated with governing, governing the area of Yehud. How could you let this happen? Verse 12, I gathered them together, set them in their stations, and all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses, Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant, Hanan, the, all these names, for they were considered reliable. Their duty was to distribute to their brothers, period. I want to treat verse 14 separately. So what does he do? Fred's word, decisive. 
You made a commitment to support the temple. You're not doing it. So I'm gathering you all together, which is presumably what he means at the end of verse 11. And what he does is he gets them to recommit to that vow. And it's amazing, verse 12, they're obedient. Then all Judah brought the tithe. And so they respond. And then he does something else. He appoints a whole bunch of people in the term that's used in verse 13, treasurers. These are the people who will be good stewards. And what was the qualification? They were considered reliable. They're trustworthy. They're dependable. They'll carry out the stewardship responsibility. Let's use a modern accounting term the fiduciary responsibilities that they have. A good leader makes sure that everyone is on the right seat of the bus. And that's what Nehemiah's doing. He's just not filling a slot. He's filling it to do this stewardship fiduciary responsibility, reliable, confident people of integrity. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. But, I mean, you see this, it, it, I, I'm always stunned by chapter 13 when I've studied it and taught it. And that's Fred's the right word. His decisive leadership. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, oh, I'm not sure what to do here. Uh, um, I'm not sure I'm going to have to read about two or three books to figure it hey, This is very clear. You made a commitment. You're not following a commitment. Re, recommit to the commitment. And I'm going to get a bunch of people that are going to make sure that this commitment is honored. That's leadership. These are people that, you know, there's so much going on. There's so many pressures. It's difficult. This is a hard life. Being under the Persian Empire, the tax rate was unbelievably high. It, it was higher than what Bernie Sanders wants to put on. No, I'm, I'm sure. it, it's, it, it was unbelievably oppressive. And so it, you can understand that it would be easy. Nobody's really holding us to the tithe. I'm not going to pay it. He's re- he restored. You made that commitment. Now honor the commitment. So it's just it's, it, you, you appreciate the decisiveness of him here. He's doing what is obvious needs to be done, but nobody else is doing it. And so he makes sure then people will follow through. Can you make uh, application of this uh, concept to today's pastors uh, in the church uh, and? Uh, the caring for them. Because we have the board. I'm a pastor, so I need to be careful what I'm going to say here. Because we have the board well, and the trustees. And yeah, I mean, there there's a lot of trails I could go down and respond to your question, but it is, um, it is important, I think, I'll use the term elders. I know all yeah. some of your different traditions would have different names for leaders. You might have deacons or trustees or whatever you have, but I'll use the word elders. Uh, the elders, it seems to me, have a very, very important responsibility. Once there's clarity of what the duties of your staff are, senior pastor or lead pastor, whatever you want to call them, and others, what their responsibility, you want to make sure that they have enough support that they can do that. In other words, financial support. 
But also, and I, I have, I'm not a voting member of our elder board, I'm an ex-official member, I've said to the elders several times, you need also to serve a protective function for our lead pastor so that he has adequate time to study. Because his main responsibility is preaching the Word of God on Sunday and so on and other things related to that. And so to, to allow him to take on more and more and more so that this is being affected, that's not good stewardship. And so to protect him, to make sure that everybody understands this is how we look at his major responsibility and we want to make sure he has enough time in a week to study. Because if he doesn't have enough time to study, that will affect his preaching and teaching. And so I think that's part of this. And Nehemiah is looking at this and saying, if the Levites are doing day labor work, they can't do what we want them to do and what God wants them to do. That doesn't make sense. So the spiritual life of the nation is going to be affected. So for us in the New Testament church, it's to make sure that the, the, the individuals who are teaching and preaching the word of God have adequate support to be able to do that. They don't have to go and do day labor work, which is going to affect. Plus, also, we're protecting them. The, this is one of the dangers of the modern pastor. The assumption is the modern pastor will be a CEO. The modern pastor is not a CEO. That doesn't mean he doesn't have leadership responsibilities. But there, again, is where your elders take on that managerial, fiduciary, stewardship, overall. And, it, and it's, it's just hard to divvy that all out. So that's the best I can answer in that question. And I, I, I um, what I used to do in, in my former leadership role, we had programs where we were training young guys to go into ministry. And some of them would go, and often their first assignment was a rural church. You know, usually relatively small, but rural church. And I, a couple of times, I would go to some of the elders and speak with the boards. It is really, really, really important that you take care of this young guy. Because this young guy is just getting started. You've got to make sure he has enough time to study, but you can't have expectations this high for him. He's not a CEO. And I, so to understand that role that's defined so clearly in the New Testament um, is not always carefully and wisely done by the spiritual leadership of the church, the elder board or whatever you want to call them. At this time, did the Levites have a weak leader or no leader? Why were they so easily abused? <laughs> Well, they weren't always the, the, the best paragons of, of virtue in terms of what they're supposed to do. Uh, that's a great question. The, the leader, the, the official leader of the Levites would be the high priest. And then as that evolved, even some of the Sanhedrin, that, that is not in the New Testament. That was something that developed. But, um, I mean, officially it would be the high priest and, and then those who served immediately with him and under him in administering what was going on in, in Jerusalem. But they are then responsible for all the other, what became the Levitical cities, which are all over Israel and so on. So they are accountable to him or to the high priesthood. 
and the high priesthood is responsible for making sure they're doing but see that that broke down that that's the tragedy of what happens that breaks down there are times when it's working very well but if you don't have a very strong high priest who really understands what their spiritual responsibilities are and it deteriorates into we're we're we're, we're doing well we're making lots of money with this and that's what, by the time of Jesus, that's what the high priesthood was. Annas, who was the father-in-law, Caiaphas, they were, and their family became fabulously rich. And part of it was what they were doing with the selling and trading of, of and exchanging of money. It was horrible what happened. Does that answer your question? The third offense. Verse 15. And in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on their donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of load, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Why is that such a big deal? Shabbat. Shabbat. What is Shabbat? To a Jew, what is the importance of the Sabbath? Rest. What? Rest. Rest. Well, okay, that's the function of it. But it's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It's the most important thing you do in your religious practice is to keep the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah has been gone from Jerusalem. He comes back to Jerusalem, and what does he see? The Sabbath is a work day. There's trading and selling of goods and exchange of goods, and he just can't believe it. And to make it worse, I wonder on a day when they sold food, Tyrians, now that, that means Phoenicians from way up north, from the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And the ESV puts an exclamation point after that. In Hebrew, there are no exclamation points. But in English, there are exclamation points. So just to demonstrate the outrageous, unbelievable, inconceivable development, there are non-Jewish traders from Tyre. They're part of the great Phoenician trading empire, which was all over the Mediterranean Sea. They're not bringing their goods into Jerusalem. They're living in Jerusalem. And living in Jerusalem, selling stuff. Fish, and who's buying it? Jews. On what day? I, I'm, I gotta settle down. I'm, I'm more preaching. I don't mean to do that, but it's. To, to, I'm trying to. This is truly, truly, in the real meaning of an overused word, truly unbelievable. I am certain when Nehemiah observed that, he just shook his head. But without a strong leader, things deteriorate quickly. These are the most important things in the spiritual life of these exiles. The Sabbath. And they're treating the Sabbath just like any other day of the week. Remember the Sabbath, and Fred's correct, the Hebrew for that is Shabbat, it means rest. It's patterned after God's creative activity in Genesis 1. God creates and he completes his work and rests. 
That doesn't mean God needs to sleep. It's just that's the pattern. He sets that pattern for the human race. He works six days. The seventh is a rest. And that seventh day is my day. Hallelujah. You devote that day to worship and, and so on. And so you, you, they're just, it's, it's inconceivable to, to Nehemiah that they would do this. How could you be doing this? And I confronted, verse 17, I confronted the nobles of Judah. These would be, when he, the word nobles apparently has a political connotation to it. You, you, you guys are allowing this? What is the evil thing you're doing? And there is the language, profaning the Sabbath day. Strong word, profaning. Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not God bring all of this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What is Nehemiah referring to? When he talks about bring this disaster on us, what disaster? Huh? Yeah, but specifically what? Yeah, the, and the, the, all that had happened when Nebuchadnezzar came and took him into exile for 70 years. God said, if you do not keep the Sabbath, this is what I'm going to do to you. And so Nehemiah is saying, how could you guys forget this? How could you forget this was the major reason God sent us into exile? So you are intentionally, willfully, understandably profaning the Sabbath. You want this to happen again? A leader takes the clear purposes of God and makes sure everybody understands them. And if you don't, these are the consequences. And this is what's going to motivate the children of Israel from being now and the time Jesus shows up. We have got to keep the Sabbath. And the Hasidim, later they're called the Pharisees, will champion that. Keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. It's a sign of your covenant relationship with God in the Mosaic Covenant. But then they went to the other extreme. But that's not our purpose. Okay? Woody. Uh, We we really talk about verse 14 very much. So much did I not offer. You are are right. I told you I was going to treat separately verse 14, and I skipped it. Aren't you thankful that Woody holds me accountable? Yes. Aren't, aren't you thankful yeah. for that? I thought maybe I nodded off. No, 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 no. You didn't. You are holding me accountable. Your righteous indignation is apparent. No. <laughs> Just verse 14. I'll go back to that. Verse 14 is one of Nehemiah's straight arrow prayers. We saw those throughout the book. It's very simple. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. Did not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for my, for his service. Now that could a little bit sound self-elevating. That's not. He's saying, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. Remember me. Remember me as, um, what would be a word to you, is uh, a petition. Remember me as a petition you see throughout the Old Testament. The prophets will often say that. Uh, Abraham said that. Moses says that a couple of times in the wilderness wanderings. Remember me. It's a covenant. It's a covenant petition. Remember me. Remember me. I have these stewardship responsibilities to do the work you want me to do. Remember me. I can't do this on my own. I need your enablement. I need your blessing. I need your help. 
That's a, it's a wonderful prayer of a leader. It's a straight arrow prayer. Remember me. I'm, I'm putting myself out there, God. Because, I mean, he is, you know, he's the only one saying this stuff. It's remarkable. But it's remember me. Fred. Taking Nehemiah's case, I, I think he fully knows that God's got his back. Absolutely. He's just expressing profound exasperation at the conditions that he, he returned to. I, I think. He's saying, I can't believe, I can't yeah. believe what, what this is. Yep. No, I, think, I think that's right. Um, and I like that, that God's got his back. But sometimes, it, and this is what the psalmist does. You're going to see it in some of the psalms we're going to study. The psalmist will keep saying the obvious to God. It, you know, what, it's like you really don't need to tell God that. But you do that to restate and, and summarize your covenant relationship with God. Okay? Question. Yeah. Um, is can, uh, can you comment on, um, here we have slipping a little <clears throat> quote. And, you know, as, as Christians, we think, you know, God's a pretty good guy. He's, you know, he, he understands when I, you know, don't do some of the things that I should do. And, you know, he'll, he'll let that slide and uh, can you comment on that general thing versus the blessings that are ours as Christians when we are focused on him as we go through our lives, aware of his leading and his desire for our lives? Can you comment on that? Like, it's, you know, he understands. If I don't do everything, you know, like I know I should, can you comment on that sort of attitude as a Christian now, having received Christ as Savior. Well, if your relationship with the Lord is based on the premise, I'd rather seek forgiveness than permission for what I do when I choose to sin. That's the wrong perspective. God is a gracious God. God deals with us in grace always, always, always. He's always merciful, always compassionate. But at the same time, and this is something the Apostle Paul addresses a number of times, to presume on his grace, to demand his grace, to insist on his grace, is not the kind of walk he wants with you. So I hope you're following my, my thought there. So our, our passion should be to walk in loving obedience with the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus also knows, because of who we are, that we will stumble and fall, that we will make mistakes. But if your attitude is, well, whatever I do is ultimately going to be okay with God because he's gracious, Paul has a very strong word for that. It's meganoita. It's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. That is not what God wants. You know, I, I used to, um, when I would be teaching full-time, which was really a long time ago, I found something with students. It just these are supposed to be really good Christian students. It's really amazing. You extend students a little bit of grace. This assignment is due the beginning of class on this date. Oh, I I had trouble last night. My computer broke. My printer broke. You know the ninety six thousand things that can happen to a student. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's really fascinating what happens. You extend grace, then what happens? They begin to expect grace. And then, if you keep extending grace, then they begin to, this is outrageous, but they begin to demand grace. Right? It's just like your children when you were raising them. It's amazing how manipulative our children can be when they see we're very gracious. So I started to be, I was, I became, because I, I watched that. It was just amazing to me how my students, these wonderful teenage kids, 19, 20-year-old kids, they'd not get an assignment. Oh, you can be, okay, I'll give you an extra two days. And then the next assignment, there were three that needed that extra two you know how many it was the next assignment? Ten. <laughs> then the third assignment, sixteen. That is when Ekman became hard-hearted. And the next semester, this is many years ago, the next semester I put in the syllabus. This assignment is due at the beginning of class, if it was a 9 a.m. class, 9 a.m. on the 30th of January and whatever the year was. No exception. That's hard hard, isn't it? No. Isn't that awful? No, that's good. Now I'm saying that because then if I saw an opportunity to be gracious, I did exercise grace. God is like that. He's saying to us, I am not lowering the bar for you. I am righteous and holy. I want you to be righteous and holy. But I understand who you are. I understand, in the words of Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, I understand you are dust. But you are in my image. I love you. I redeemed you. And I want to walk with you. But I'm never going to lower the bar. I'm going to enable you to reach the goal. And so it's that kind of an approach that I think is the approach we should have as we think about God. Is he gracious? When we stumble and fall, when we make mistakes, absolutely. But if you go into your life with the attitude, walk with him in your life, oh, I can stumble and fall, he'll forgive me, it'll be fine, doesn't matter how I live, that is not honoring to the Lord. Verse 19. So Nehemiah sees this utterly disastrous affront to God in not observing the Sabbath. And soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. What is the leader doing? Establishing the boundaries for the exile community and making it very, very difficult for them to violate the Sabbath. There's not going to be any Tyrenians coming into the city and selling their fish. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds were lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay my hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves, come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. To keep the Sabbath holy, that's the language of the Old Covenant of Moses. 
That's the language of Exodus 20. That's the language of the covenant sign of the old covenant. Keep the Sabbath holy. It belongs to God. Amen. It's a day of rest. It's a day for you to cease doing what you do the other six days and devote that day to me, to your family, to rest, to worship. They weren't doing that. It's a covenant sign of the old covenant. They were treating it flippantly. That is not how you walk with God. So Nehemiah the leader is going to make it difficult for them to violate the Sabbath. And once he cleans it all up, who now has the responsibility to make sure there's no trading? The Levites. The spiritual bastion of the nation, the Levites. It's your responsibility. So what does he do? He makes sure everybody's on the bus. Now he's making sure everybody has the right seat on the bus doing what God wants them to do on that seat of the bus. I'm mixing some old metaphors there, but I think you get it. So I, just, I just, I look at Nehemiah and I see there is a decisive leader clearly doing what the Lord wanted him to do. And there's another prayer. Woody, I didn't miss this one. <laughs> Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. What's the Hebrew word? I wrote it on the board. Remember? Chesed. Okay, you obviously forgot that. Do you know how much that hurts my heart? No, I'm just kidding. So he's just he's he's referring again to that covenantal relationship. Remember me? According to what standard? The standard of your loyal, covenant, steadfast love. Don't you think that uh, he wanted to hear from Dave? Well done. Oh, my son. Absolutely. Absolutely. As well as Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No no question. Ben. Um, another, you talk about the leadership traits. Another trait you showed here was uh, he delegated. Exactly. He didn't do it all. independence, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good point. He delegates those responsibilities. And to, uh, if I can add that, to the people that most responsibly should do this, the spiritual leaders of the nation. All right, there's one more. And uh, then we're going to be able to utter a sentence, which we don't utter too often in this class, will be done with a book of the Bible. We, we, it takes us often a long time to do this. You see, again, this it just keeps cropping up again and again. The last offense, the last issue, begins in verse 23. In those days... Also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod. That's a Philistine city. Ammon, they're the Ammonites to the immediate east of the Jordan River. And the Moabites to the southeast. The Ammonites and the Moabites are the descendants of that incestuous relationship Lot had with his daughters. You've got to go way back to Genesis. And they had been the historic enemies of the Jews. 
Philistines, Ammonites, Moabites. And what are some Jewish men doing? Marrying women from these three areas. The Philistines, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, the Philistine dialect. They could not speak the language of Judah, meaning they didn't know Hebrew. They couldn't speak Hebrew. And Hebrew is the language of the covenant people, the only language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now let's think biblically about that. Do you want me to read that again? And by the way, just to make sure you don't, that word cursed, that he's using the language of Deuteronomy 28. This is an affront to God, what you're doing. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. An ancient Near Eastern practice of humiliation. In all seriousness, why would Nehemiah do that? He's showing the sincerity of the commitment that's needed to adhere to the standards that he's brought to the people to purify themselves as a nation. I would say that would be one reason. And reminding them that they... And we had read about it just a little earlier at the very beginning of this chapter. We had seen it in an earlier chapter, and we didn't study it in this class. But if you go to the book of Ezra, you see it in Ezra too. This is an ongoing problem. Jewish boys marrying these foreign girls. And this gets is, is really quite outrageous. Philistine, Ammonite, and Moabite women. All a historic animosity to the Jewish people. Is it possible, and, and I don't know how else to put it, so I'm going to put it this way. Just think with me about this. Is it possible that Nehemiah wants to make a very, very significant public statement of how outrageous this is to God? And this, I mean, this, what he did is not, and this is going to sound strange, it's not unusual in the ancient Near Eastern world, it's highly unusual in 2020 for a leader to do this. Can you imagine, Jim, can you imagine Pastor Matt doing this in our church, you know? That's just, you can't imagine that. But it's, this is in an ancient Near Eastern context. These were not unusual things to see. But he's doing it because he represents Yahweh Elohim to a people who are giving affront to God. You guys are doing something that breaks God's heart. It's an affront to the covenant, and you are treating him with derision and contempt. And I'm not going to let you do that. Where's the role of the father 
uh, in the family today in terms of providing direction of, um, of um, spiritual purity for daughters and for sons. What, how would you describe the role today uh, of a father in that regard? Teach it, live it, and to the degree you can do it, insist upon it with your children. I mean, uh, and to in 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 the United States of America in 2020, to uh, teach and model purity before your children, and to enable them to make that commitment of purity is very countercultural. You don't understand what I mean by that. And so therefore it's even more imperative um, for parents to make sure that their kids are committing to that kind of a standard before they get married. And, and with that, I just wanted to finish, yeah, with that to follow the, 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 the clear standard that Paul levels out for us in Second Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked. Don't marry an unbeliever. And I, I think maybe as guys and fathers maybe, um, and most of us uh, were past that uh, time, but it seems to me that if we're given that role by God as far as leadership in our family, and I think it's there, that it will have an impact on our children. And it may, we may be discouraged at times that it isn't. But I think it's, if we're consistent, it will register with them and it'll impact their lives. And that's what we can do. And then the rest, I mean, it's not like it's a crapshoot. It's, I think it's, God will use that perhaps in how our children grow up thinking about God and their responsibilities of faith to God. I think that's right. Fred, there are no guarantees, because I can, no. I can, I know many yeah. men and, and, and families where they've had a wayward child, and you say, how could it possibly happen? Always remember that child is accountable and culpable for the decisions they make. Now listen, let me, uh, let me look at this next verse. This is quite decisive. In the middle of verse 25, I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin? on account of such women. Now, I hope you have enough of a memory of how powerful that rhetorical question is. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, when he became king, when his dad died, what did he say? God, I don't know how to do this. I'm terrified by this responsibility. And God says, what do you want? Anything you want, I'll give you. What did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Did Solomon exercise that wisdom in how he lived his personal life? No. He married women. It's unbelievable. If you ever go to Jerusalem and you stand on Temple Mount, and I'm with you, I'm going to point to the southeast, and there's a mountain there. It's called the Mount of Abominations. 
That is where Solomon built all of the temples to the gods of his many wives. That's why it's called Mount Abomination. It's right next to Temple Mount. It's unbelievable. And, and Nehemiah is saying, don't you remember what happened to Solomon when he married an Ammonite woman, a Moabite woman? He did. His wives were two, from those two. I don't think he had a Philistine wife. But, and, so, and he also had Pharaoh's daughter. He married her. Built a huge temple to her, a huge house for her right next to his on Temple Mount. And he's just saying, don't you know what happened to Solomon? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and not act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? That's it. It's over. There's no more discussion. He gives the command. He uses the example, Solomon, and says the application is obvious. Stop doing it or you will ruin the nation. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite. Therefore I chased him from me. He had married one of them. Then the last of these remember me prayers. Remember them, O God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. That's an imprecatory prayer. Remember them. Lord, you take care of them. It is. It's, it's an imprecatory prayer. It really is. Then I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, even each his work. I provided for the wood offering at appointed time and for their first fruit. Last sentence of the book. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Amen. I represent you. I stand for you. Remember me. So... Nehemiah, um, in, in my view, and I think you would certainly agree with me, Nehemiah is one of the great heroes of the Bible. He, he's right up there with um, Moses and, and Abraham. He, uh, he's an extraordinary leader. And that's why I gave you, at the end of your note packet, there are actually copies of, of PowerPoint slides I've used. But Chuck Swindoll, in his wonderful book, Pass Me Another Brick, as an appendix, and this is where I got most of these. And what Swindoll just does is takes all of the parts of the narrative about Nehemiah's life and draws out these principles of, of leadership. And, um, you know, I'm not going to read these to you. You can read, but if you see it, there's a total of 16 of them. And a lot of these we've been talking about throughout our discussion of, over these weeks. But um, I like to approach the study of Nehemiah, I mean, historically and through the grid of the covenant, which is so important, but also through the, the leadership qualities that he exhibited. He is a great leader, a great leader. We can learn much. And some of you are in leadership in your businesses and so on. I would just encourage you to think and ask the Lord for the insight but how can I apply some of these things to my life and to, to my role as a leader? Okay? Yes. So it's a delightful book, isn't it? 
has it been helpful for yes, you? Amen. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it has been. I, I, it's been a blessing for me. Did you get a copy of it? Oh, good. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's it's really uh, yeah. Most of Swindoll stuff is really worthwhile spending some time on. Okay. Yes. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time in Nehemiah. What a enriching study it's been for me personally to go through this again and study it again and and just think about it again. What what a tremendous challenge it is to us that, to be decisive and unequivocal like Nehemiah was as a leader in, in very stressful, difficult situations, to continually, constantly shoot those straight arrow prayers to you, which he does, does throughout the book, to, to reflect uh, uh, his characters and, and his integrity regardless of the situation. Lord, he's a model leader for us because he helps us to understand what pressure and stress and acting wisely and carefully and prudently in those situations, what that looks like. Thank you for this wonderful book we've studied together. I trust it's been a blessing to the men and helped them grow in their lives and their walk with you. And for those that are in leadership positions to, to perhaps apply some of these these principles and, and, and ways of acting and decisive acting, especially in stressful situations. Bless each man here. May they continue to grow as men of faith, men of God, men who are serious about their walk with you, men who love you, love their wives and their children, and seek to represent you in word and deed to your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week.